2: Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, we have the New Yorker staff writer, Gia Tolentino, to talk about her new book of essays, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Now, as the title suggests, she really does interrogate her own self-delusions, and she says that her writing is the way that she makes sense of things, and Often what's so fabulous about these essays that range from her obsession with the bar method, to cheerleading, to being on a reality TV show as a teenager, to growing up within a Christian megachurch. She also chronicles her time in Kyrgyzstan in the Peace Corps and the whiplash of returning home to America to find that, yes, the privilege in America that we have and that people in America have is overwhelming but also as a woman in America there's there's still a power dynamic struggle going on with men she also discovers which I hope everyone will look up the Milan Women's Collective I'll leave that to our conversation to talk about it more but it's a wonderful group whose work we can all now interrogate and you know find in the library and buy and read here's Gia Gia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: Now, in the introduction of your book, Trick Mirror, there's a quote that I'd love you to read because I think it just launches us into exactly what all these essays are about, but particularly writing is a way that you make sense of things. But I'm lucky enough to have you before you've done any other interviews and you won't be able to censor yourself or kind of... um, you know, constructs your beautiful narrative. Yeah, this will be nonsense. So we'll see, we'll (laughs) see. We get you fresh and unadulterated. Yeah, Yeah, but please read this quote and then we'll get a sense of things.
1: This is when I was talking about when I wrote the book, which was kind of between the spring of 2017 and the fall of 2018. And I wrote that in this period, I found that I could hardly trust anything that I was thinking. A doubt that always hovers in the back of my mind intensified that whatever conclusions I might reach about myself, my life and my environment are just as likely to be diametrically wrong as they are to be right.
2: So we're a few, well, we're one year since, you know, 2018. Are you still feeling as kind of afloat or,
1: you know, adrift is the right word? Well, I think yes. And I think productively. Like I basically after the election in 2016, I was like so disgusted by the affect of certainty that I had felt even you know, in the, in the lead up to the election, like feeling sure that Hillary was going to win. And just for a while before that, I had been feeling troubled by the sort of affect of certainty that would work its way into a lot of personal essays, which I loved and I edited and I loved editing and I loved writing, but there was this, there's this kind of undertone would collect towards the end. And it was like, and that's why I was right to do what I did or something like that. Like there'd be this sort of the essay, essays would end on a note of certainty that just began seeming further and further from how I actually process the world. I've been thinking through this and it's not like a doubting like my morals or my ethics, but it's just, I just don't feel like certain about almost anything anymore. And I've been trying to see if I could scrub that out in my writing. Like I wanted to see, like this book is sort of me trying to be like, what is the type of clarity that can coexist without not finding, sorry, what's like, what's the type of clarity that can coexist with not needing like a firm takeaway or an answer, you know? Cause I was like, that's what I'm looking for. I don't want to, I don't want like to develop takeaways for myself or for anyone. Cause I feel like who can trust those anyway or anymore? Well, it's so interesting because coming from women's magazines,
2: I would remember being around the table and the literal words would be, what's the takeaway for the right, reader. Right, right, right. And reading your essays and, you know, we come to the end of them and we're left with far out. Like, I don't know. Like, Good, I'm glad. What, <laughs>
1: what are we
2: going to do? I, don't,
1: I think that's good and it's bad too. Like when I remember went into, I went into my first marketing meeting with Random House and they were like, so first question, what is, like if you had to sum up the takeaway in one, one sentence and I was like, oh no. I was like, I'm going to be miserable about promoting this book because there's really nothing. And I was like, well, I was like, this is sort of a book that's written. It's an argument against conclusions in a lot of ways. So I was like, so I don't have an answer and I don't think I ever will.
2: That's funny. I mean, because if we go back to the origin of the essay, it really is yeah. to work out one's inner questions on the page. Yeah, So it's almost like these essays are returning to the original point of an essay, which is maybe just
1: to try and make sense to conflicting things. And and actually something you just said reminded me of, oh, the women's magazines thing. I think there are these two like opposing forces that I would also feel sometimes, which was that in, especially in a personal essay, and I can feel these forces at work in myself where it's like, and I, I write about it a little bit in the intro too. It's like you're both trying to prove that you were like correct all along and perfect and justified and also that you were so wrong, you know, that you were so bad. You know, like these kind of, there were these two poles of like self-abnegation and self-aggrandizement that uh, these essays often kind of swung between and I can feel the attraction to that in my own writing. And yeah, I guess I was just trying to work it out. (laughs) Well,
2: one of the essays that I feel does that speaks to that particularly is about when you were on a reality TV show (laughs) and it was pretty cool. It was like watching, remember the affair? Oh yeah. yeah, You see something from his perspective and then hers and (laughs) yet you did it with yourself. So tell us like, what did you do in that essay?
1: So the context for this essay is that when I was 16 years old and I was a senior in high school, I went to Puerto Rico for a month to film a reality TV show Uh, and I never watched it. (laughs) <laughs> Until I was like coming up with a book. I, you know, was like thinking about writing this book. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be a book about the circumstances in my life and in our culture that seem like especially conducive to self-deception, you know, and like whatever, the the self and its contradictions. And I was like, Oh God, I was on that reality show. And I so I tracked down DVDs and I watched them and it was a really wild experience for a lot of ways. One of the major ones was that, you know, one of the things that I feel a lot of ambient sort of self-loathing about is how naturally I cleave to systems of self-promotion. Like social media is like, oh, it's fun, you know, like, and it's also like such bullshit, but I've always taken to it really naturally. And I feel a little weird about that. And I was like, oh, you were always doing this. Like you were always like, there was another place where I found I was like basically blogging when I was 11 on Angelfire.com. Like I was just always self-broadcasting in these ways, including this reality show. And there were, and it was interesting to see how naturally it had come, how naturally it had come to me at 16, like how I, I really behaved almost exactly the same then as I do now, which is like kind of alarming, but kind of reassuring
2: you know, I feel that is reassuring that even, yeah. and you talk about how it, there's such a self consciousness about reality TV shows, and yet you're a good, the best people have no self consciousness. Totally unself
1: conscious with all of the problems that come with it. Yeah, for sure.
2: So there's this bind. Yeah. And yet. <laughs> what does that do to the self? And you mentioned that there is a point where you thought of yourself as a character. Like when you think, what would Gia do?
1: Yeah. Versus like, what would I do? Well, and that was even, so that was a line from my diary, junior year of high school, before I went on the show, that I was worried about living my life in such a way that where I was going for like narrative consistency rather than honesty. And that was this worry that I had even before I went on the show. And... Yeah. But then at the same time on the show, like acting like the Gia character, it was hard to, in retrospect, untangle how much of it was truly unselfconscious, how much of it was, you know, I was subliminally organizing myself around this structure of self-surveillance, but like one kind of indicative story. It was so the only thing that I had ever talked about from this reality show was this incident in the first episode where they line, it's four guys versus four girls. And they line us up in front of these covered dishes. And I had been late, uh, cause I was like listening to music on my headphones in the airport and I missed my flight while eating. It's like very characteristic. And I was like, I gotta make up for, you know, I, I gotta fucking crush this performance. And the first, they say, so uncover the first jo- Like we have these like, you know, hotel, like room service, like silver, you know, what do you call them? Like bells or whatever, those things. And they uncover one and it's just a mound of hot mayonnaise. And I just speed eat this mound of hot mayonnaise. And I hate mayonnaise, you know, like I'm like a no aioli even like type of person, like no chicken salad. And I told this story a lot through the years cause I thought it was so funny cause it's so gross. You know, like it's just super gross face first in a mound of hot mayonnaise. Um, and then I watched the show and there had, the dish had never been covered. Like I had chosen to eat the mayonnaise, but all along I was like, you know, you know, this mayonnaise just plopped into my life and I had to eat it. And I was like, no, no, you fucking chose to do this. And. I sort of started wondering if that was the process at work with all of this. Like I'm sort of like all of these weird, complicated structures that I've just happened to cleave to, you know, just fell into my life. But also the truth is that I've like also sought them out. There's an amazing quote that you
2: put in there and it's it now seems obvious to me that a 16 year old doesn't end up running around in a bikini and pigtails on television unless she also desperately wants to be seen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I had always been like, oh, I just ended up cast on accident. I was like waiting for my brother at the mall. You know, someone grabbed me and I was like, that's kind of true. But it's also totally not true. You know, I mean, I was reading my journal entries around it and I was like, I wasn't surprised that I was cast. I was... I wasn't taken aback by it. I was just like, Oh, cast on this reality TV show. Guess I'm going to Puerto Rico. <laughs> like it's, this is one of those instances in which like we were, I was saying at the beginning, like a story that I tell myself about myself is that weird things just happened to me. You know, like I've had just a life where things have just happened and I've gotten, like, it's all been kind of accidental. And then it's also, but you know, the opposite story is equally true, which is that I have I've sought these things out. I have tried to attract them. I've tried to become a person that ends up in, uh, you know, strange situations and out of maybe some false modesty or something, I've been like, I don't know, who knows? Like it just happens, you
2: know? (laughs) I also love the end of that essay where uh, one of the guys on the show reminds you that you were like, I don't want to be famous, you know, just for famous, you know, being famous's sake.
1: I want to be famous for writing a book. (laughs) Oh my God. It was so, yes, but also like, yikes, right? Like it was, um, so most of them had wanted to be actors, right? Like, and I, most of the other teens wanted to be actors. They had headshots. They were like, had been models or whatever. They'd been on other reality shows and you know, they were all really interested in at the time. And I was not like, I had never, I can't act. I like had never had any interest in that. And yeah, it was crazy that Damien, this guy remembered that I had said that, like he offered that, he, he just volunteered that line to me. And, and then I was like, wow, I, I guess I have always been kind of consistent, you know, I guess. Yeah.
2: Coming back to the writing, so you are unusual in the fact that you went to first grade when you were four and then high school when you were 12 and college at 16. Um, Was that because of your, I mean, obviously intelligence, but a precociousness that people and teachers around you, your parents thought you could handle those situations.
1: Yeah. I think, I still think it's nuts that that's what my parents did. You know, like I, I don't know. It seems like it, maybe that was kind of an eighties. Like, I don't think that people do that really in the same way anymore. And two grades is way too much. I think I started school in Canada, which is part of the reason. So I had like already like the age cutoff in the year is different. So I was already like close to a year ahead by American standards by the time I moved to Texas. And then they just bumped me up another year I don't know what it was. I went to a tiny, tiny school and I think just somehow convinced the principal that it would be okay. And I haven't exactly regretted it. It was kind of amazing to graduate from college and feel like I had two extra years to fuck around, you know, but I don't know that it was always, like, I wasn't always like, it's not like I was, you know, well beloved by all my teachers you know like it wasn't like I was charming them with my like you know um, perfect coherence to like you know what was expected like I I think I was like a pill in a lot of ways.
2: Well even to go on the show didn't you have to convince the teachers that you would be going on the show to represent
1: the light of God. Yeah. 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 But honestly, and so I write, and there's another essay where I write about the school itself, which was, you know, it's, it is by some metrics, the second biggest megachurch in America. I like may, there was definitely a part of me, I don't know how, how small or large, and it was definitely not all of me that believed that in a Mm -hmm. tiny little way or something, you know, I was going back when I was I was going back through all my journals. So, so much for so many of these essays. And, um, yeah, it was, I have basically a daily record of everything I thought from age like 11 to 19. And it's, it's, you know, it was sort of as dizzying as watching the show, you know, it's like some stories that I've told my, told myself about myself are very manipulated. Others, are more true than I could have ever known, you know, <laughs> like some things are so incredibly consistent. Some things about me have never, ever changed since childhood. And some things I've changed so much without understanding the degree to which I have. And part of one of those latter ways is the religious part. Like, um, it's it's so wild to read, um, you know, you yourself processing your life when your belief in God is like a bedrock of your understanding of the world. And for for me, it was like that for at least through like freshman year of high school, you know, like maybe not all the way through, but strange.
2: And was the writing in your journals the first place that you started to question your religion? Yeah,
1: I mean, I... I have almost no thoughts that just exist in my head. (laughs) Like, I don't know you I don't know it's, I don't know if this is a a completely normal thing, but I just can't hold thoughts in my head. Like I have to write them down to see them. I basically like can hardly think, (laughs) you know, I can only write things down. And I think that's all, that's always how I've been. And so as soon as I would think anything, it would just immediately be rendered into writing where I could look at it because otherwise I just couldn't, I have a hard time. I can't really meditate on things for too long. It has to come out. Yeah. And there, you know, going back, you could, I could see little, like, yeah, like little sprouts of doubt, you know, like coming in earlier than I thought. The Baptist church
2: sounds like an incredibly interesting way to grow up. Mm -hmm. And you said it gave you this bedrock of faith. Yeah. um, That's seems to be even the way you interrogate a subject trying to find the truth, but also a goodness in something. That's really nice. Th- thank you. <laughs> yeah. Like the, even in thought about it like that. all the New Yorker work and here, there's still a a kindness in the way you address the subject, you know? I, that's so nice to hear. Otherwise, thank like, you. <laughs> why would we want, you yeah. know, otherwise everything would be a a sad way to look at the world. Yeah, um, and you mentioned that it is this, like your the foundation
1: of your belief in how to be a good person. Yeah, for sure. And my politics, um, like you know, the church sent me very far left, but it but it did so firmly. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you find
2: now that there is it's a difficult idea to be say a feminist and
1: a Christian? Well, I'm not religious at all anymore, but I, um, but I think actually in recent years, there's this woman, Rachel Held Evans, who just died recently. Like there's the most interesting thought that's been like the the most interesting thought in religious political discourse I've thought has come from the feminist religious left. There there has been an enormous like upswing of writing and interrogation on that. And it's like not a, it's not a movement that I feel part of in any way, but I am so glad that it exists. And I, you know, it's like, if that had existed Like if that had existed 20 years ago, like maybe I would not have run screaming from the church, you know, or I didn't even run screaming maybe I wouldn't have walked away from it, but I'm glad that it's there. Yeah.
2: Leaving home and separating from a religious school, was that when you started to leave in more of a conscious way? Did you talk to your parents about when your beliefs were starting to wane a bit?
1: I don't know if I ever really consciously talked to them. It was college, it was a lot of things. I've also, like the thing is about, like my parents raised me to be very, very independent. And they culti- like kind of actively cultivated that in me. And, you know, I think I ended up being much more independent than they could have seen, could have foreseen. And I'm also pretty bad at hiding anything about myself. And, all you know, I did the normal amount of teenage deception. You know, I wasn't like, hello, mom, I'm going to go drink in a parking lot now. You know, like I wasn't exactly telling them everything I was doing, but I wasn't hiding my feelings or my, you know. And I'm sure my parents are are as perceptive as like, you know, they're, they're perceptive people and I'm sure they noticed, I'm sure, you know, you're bringing your kids to church. I'm sure you start to notice when they are tense, you know, and when they become disengaged. And I think it was, yeah, until growing up when you think there's only one way to be good and bad. And I have all, you know, I wanted to be good. Like I wanted to live in the world as a good person and to care about other people and to whatever, like be continuously working towards being better. I I found that really edifying in Christianity and I still find that idea edifying. And then in college, I was like, oh, you can do this in so many ways. (laughs) You know, and it's so silly to think that it took me that long to realize, but, you know, like I never met a Democrat till I was in college. Like I never met a person that was pro-choice, you know, like never met like a Jewish person till I was in college. Like it was, I was so cloistered in in my school life. But at the same time, you know, it was I didn't feel like i had severed my past. It's like I'm still friends with all my high school friends. Like I still my parents still live in Houston. So like it was almost like writing this essay was like the real like not goodbye to it, but you know, like putting the cap on something that I'd been processing for the last 15 years without really realizing it.
2: There's in one of your essays, there's also a place where you talk about how religion and ecstasy mm offer almost the same things. And yeah. it was such an incredible... I'm going to read it because I had never thought of it, about it like this. You said, ecstasy in religion, I, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, makes you feel like the best version of the person you would be if you were able to let your lifelong psychological burdens go. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I read that and I thought, they are like that. It's true. And we want
1: You want to be free. Like you, It's like this world of... Like I say elsewhere, it's like this rapture and pardon that's total, you know, and we all want to feel like that, you know, it feels really good to feel like that. And it's important to understand what that feeling offers you.
2: Yeah. Like who would we be if we could be the best version of, version of ourselves?
1: Yeah. And just to, and like, I think in both, um, with both religion and with drugs, it's sort of, um. What's also offered is like a sense almost of mystery that that is accessed, right? Like it's you, you're offered like a veil rippling between you and something transcendent. And yeah, and that, like it's a genuinely important thing to access. And I, in a way I'm writing that essay, I was like, I'm so glad that I, you know, was like hallucinating God every day for, (laughs) you know, like it made me really open to you know, whatever sense of mystery I still have, you know. And it's good to be in awe of the yeah, world. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so good to be in awe of the world. And then, I mean, say with
2: drugs, right, They, you, the brain shifts into a, usually a darker place before yeah. you kind of level out again. And I guess in, with a belief system, you're also, I'm sure as in a, in a collective, particularly because you said that your church had more than 6,500 people in it. Yeah, and Uh, per service. Per service. So just I'm imagining being um, around that many people with such a belief system and you couple it with music and all these things, it's an incredible thing to be a part of just a group of people doing something the same.
1: Right, it like sent me straight like... the club to do drugs, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a situation that is incredibly powerful and it's also like replicable. I mean, like with the first times that I was like really fucked up at a music festival or something, it felt almost the same as church, you know, it's just like a bunch of people with their hands up, like who are out of their minds for whatever reason. And like, you know, on this collective, um, like beautiful collective hysteria. Um, Yeah. It also
2: reminded me of a soul cycle class. Oh yeah,
1: totally, totally. And replicating that. Right, that, or like a motivational seminar, like any of these things, right? Yeah. And then
2: another part, I mean, one of the essays that
1: goes to so many crazy places, and
2: that's what I love about your work. We're on one thing. Oh yeah. And I'm like very meandering. I'm like, in there. And oh my gosh, we're going to bar method oh, yeah. now. Oh, this my is God. incredible. <laughs> but kind of going from the soul cycle link to then bar method in this way that women often, mostly women gather together Mm -hmm. to have this collective experience that's sometimes highly
1: eroticized. Mm -hmm. What led you to that essay? So the bar essay, the athleisure essay is actually, so the the kernel of that essay is um, I used to work, when I worked at Jezebel, our offices were, directly above the Lululemon flagship store and Lululemon always just like something about it really bothered me. I couldn't put my finger on it. Like it was definitely partly the slogans on the the tote bags, you know, like those slogans on those little red bags that are like really, really wild, you know, like one of them says children are the orgasm of life. And I remember I would just look at that sometimes and just be like, like, what is this? But it was like something about Lululemon really, I was like trying to figure out what my like what the like friction I felt when I looked at it was because I do yoga all the time, you know, I like exercising, you know, for reasons that I, you know, like it's like, like mental health wise, you know, whatever. It's like I I feel this need, a genuine need and pleasure in exercise because it just makes you feel better but then I feel guilt about that because it's like, I'm optimizing myself for better work performance in a punitive capitalist world, but yet I must. Anyway, I had this sort of theory that, that athleisure was late capitalist fetish wear and I couldn't put my, and I knew that it was like a deeply rooted theory, but I hadn't worked out what the roots were, but something about it there was something about Lululemon and what it telegraphed. This also like intensified one day when I forgot my clothes and was going to a bar class, like, you know, my shitty, like old Navy stuff. And also I wrote a New Yorker piece on outdoor voices like three months ago or more than that. And now I own all this outdoor voices. Like I finally caved to the world of, of expensive athleisure and it's, it's so much nicer, (laughs) but I went in there, you know, and it was like, like at the time I was still wearing, you know, like old t-shirts, like ratty leggings and like Lululemon, it was just like straps and mesh and like, you know, like peekaboos and cutouts and drapes and like, you know, exposures of collarbones and like your cleavage and your whole back and like these all of it, the the language of it. It seemed to me like this was the clothing that you wore when you ha- you felt a near erotic drive to optimize your body, like a market asset. Like there was something about the way athleisure treated your body that it was like, which is kind of the same way that I feel that bar treats your body, which is like an asset that's divisible into smaller assets that you can, you can improve all of their market performance, you know, and then make the asset stronger as a whole. There was something about athleisure that I felt like it was eroticizing. Like I would write in this essay like not just the beautiful body, the optimized body itself, but the work of getting that body, you know? There was something about it that would, like it made almost a fetish out of out of the work. And, and the discipline, like don't yeah. you think there's something about
2: disciplined women yeah. that uh, highly charge people either yeah. in a pro or against yeah. camp, but also that
1: what are they optimizing for is it for the male gaze usually right or but i mean or- at this point it's like we're, it's for ourselves it's for our own success you know like in various ways like which men play a part of in you know in some way but but you know it's then i would go to bar classes and be like you know to even afford these you have to it's like this continually escalating cycle of various types of capital right like you have to have the economic capital to buy the Attire that you wear to the thing that will allow you to increase your aesthetic capital by, you know, standing up straighter and like having whatever they call it, like tell you to think about your abs like a corset and, you know, you improve your body so you'll be able to improve your stamina so that you'll be able to improve your work performance so you can keep the job that allows you to afford the bar class. You know, I would just go to these classes i be like, what am I doing? And then I would do them, but I would still keep going because Bar was very efficient. And so that whole essay is just about my attraction to all of these businesses that you could call like optimization businesses. Um, you know, like the whole wellness industry is basically a part of it. Um, Bar, you know, like places like Sweet Green or whatever. And I am attracted like ever, anyone, right, to this way of living at the same time that I am freaked out by it and how naturally I took to it.
2: I was at a barbecue last night, and I was talking about your book, and we, we we talked about bar and soul cycle and all these things, and we started. This lady who loves them all was mm-hmm. saying, "I don't have the time." to go to an hour and a half yoga class, but a 40 minute soul cycle or right. bar class. She was saying, it's the efficient use of my time. I right. don't have enough time. And then I thought of, yes, exactly. The sweet green and the idea of a chopped salad, which I'd never thought of before. I know, before. isn't that that
1: all piece, that Matt Buchanan all piece that I quoted, I, I, it changed my life when I read it, which was just this blog and I was like, holy shit.
2: <laughs> like this idea that the salad is just chopped so you don't even have to use, spend any time to use a knife and fork to chop yeah. it up. So, and then of course I hadn't thought that then you can just eat it with one hand.
1: So and you keep can- keep scrolling your phone, checking emails. Or, or still be at the computer at work. Exactly. You never have to stop producing. And that's, yeah, and that's the attraction. I mean, that was my attraction to, to Bar, right? It was like, I I kind of, I like what how exercise makes me feel. Like I like how clear it keeps my head and my mood, but I hate <laughs> exercise. You know, it's like, I'm like, I would- I really would like to find the most bang for my buck because it's like, I'm not trying to be out here like exercising every day. And I found that when I went to bar, it was like, oh, here's something that I can do like once or twice a week and feel the same as if, you know, as if I were exercising maybe, you know, more regularly. And I was like, great, this is what I'll keep doing. It's so efficient.
2: And then, what were the origins of bar and why? Oh, yeah, was that so interesting? Isn't it to wild you? the
1: origins? The Cut published a piece on this, um, like in 2017. But the whole story is is wild. Like people can go read that Cut story. But there's also it was this woman, um, Lottie Burke, this ballerina who was just you know like really abusive towards her daughter, extremely sexual you know, just developed this, this method to give women a quote unquote ballerina body. Um, and you know, I think she started this like in, in London in the like sixties, fifties, sixties, um, people were instantly drawn to this type of workout specifically because of how it made you look like it's, it's a really looks based method, like more explicitly than any other, I think type of boutique fitness. It's like bars there. So you'll look good it's not being kind of couched in another type of spirituality. Yeah, or just even strength, right? Like, um, and they do talk about strength in bar classes, but really, you know, the, the language they use in it is so explicitly about wanting to have flat abs and like toned this and that, right? Like the language is really like, let's set aside the pretense that we're here to, because you don't even really sweat in bar. Like you just, you just like lay on the ground and like twitch your butt cheeks, you know? (laughs) Like you don't really do anything. It's just, but it is. um, And yet you've said it's the best. It's pretty good. It's pretty good for lazy people who are also vain, you know, (laughs) like, yeah. Do you still do it? Yeah, yeah, I do it because, well, it is, you know, it's easy in that most of the class you're like laying on the floor, but have you ever done it? Once. It's hard, right? It's, it's so hard. It, it's it's surprisingly hard for the fact that what you're doing most of the class is like moving limbs in like inch, inch wide increments. Like it's, you're almost doing nothing, but it's incredibly hard. And maybe the fact that I like that is like a statement about the other, kind of, like things that I'm attracted to. Like I like, like I'm both, I like a real, real challenge, but I'm also in many ways, like very lazy, so I like things to be very easy too. So, really comes together in bar. Also, just the language
2: around it, as in, like the pain is worth it. There's a lot oh, of this connection yeah. about kind of, and somehow it just then fed into the kind of eroticism oh, of it. Absolutely. And I thought, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. Like it's worth it, you, it's endurance, you yeah. can take it, It's it'll. there'll be a payoff later. And I just thought, oh yeah. God, yeah. some of this sounds like things we might, you know, we would never want said to us in any other context.
1: Yeah, so bar is, I mean, there's so many, like Lululemon just aesthetically, right? It's a lot of latex, it's a lot of like legs over your head, it's a lot of, you know, like small hip movements, it's a lot of, but specifically- It's also, and this was like, again, I realized one of the reasons I was attracted to it is because I'm like extremely unathletic, but I was a dancer and a gymnast when I was a kid. And those are both very painful activities that mostly women do. And you're expected to, you know, to keep an extremely blank, pleasant face on the whole time. It's the only way I ever knew, learned how to move my body. And I was a cheerleader too. And I often think about how that socialization affected me in the ways I interacted with men, you know, in how, and how it clicks into the ways that women are taught to like perform sex, you know, like the affect is so the sort of like, you know, stereotypical porny affect is one of like blankly taking as much pain as you can, you know, while like with somewhat of a smile on your face, you know, and I just think about how the gendered expectations in those sports are linked to a lot of other things, you know, and and that sexual dimension is linked to a lot of what women have to deal with in, like, the workplace, right? Like, it's all under a system of male power that has its tentacles in everything. And I would just sometimes think of this in bar classes, you know, in a room full of women who are working so hard to improve their bodies and to keep their faces blank, you know, to not show any pain, to just, you know, at the end, everyone claps for each other. The teacher's like walking around the room being like, you know, I know it hurts like, but you look so good. Like, you know, this is like, you just have to keep going. Like the pain's what's going to change you. I just think, you know, and you think about that in terms of sex and you think about that in terms of so many things about being a woman. Right. And and I would just like, literally this is that essay was just me sitting in bar class after bar class being like, what is happening? Like something's happening. I know. I'm just trying to think of what, what the alternatives are. I mean, obviously
2: we can come up with lots of. Yeah. Other things to go exercise. Well,
1: I never really. The, I guess in the essay, I never even tried to think about. it. I yeah. like I didn't want to go through the no, motions it's of being like, like it's the like, sidebar of like
2: this is what. Yeah, yeah, or, or like the, do the concluding
1: conclusion or yeah, the concluding paragraph that's like, yeah, like I, I still do bar. I still do all of this stuff, and I think the point of that essay and so many other ones is just like it's worth it to just try to understand these things clearly even with no sense of what it's actually gonna do. Like, I think part of the animating impulse for the, we were talking about with that sense in the intro was like, I've been beset with a fear in like the last couple of years that like knowledge is useless, <laughs> you know? Like the internet really creates this feeling, like you just, you can know so much about so many things, you can't do anything about anything, kind of make you feel that way. And I don't think that's actually true. I don't think knowledge is useless, but um, obviously, <laughs> I think I was trying to figure out with all of these things. It's like, can I fully surface and interrogate the pleasure that I take from horrible things, and can I admit that without needing to fix it or change myself? You know, like can I just let, like let this knowledge exist for its own sake, and you know, hope that things will maybe work themselves out in time. Like that was like about as uh, like deep of a mission statement as I could come up with for myself. It was like, maybe all of this is useless. Like maybe knowing all of this will just make me, you know, an insufferable person to get a coffee with after a bar class, you know, when I'm like, don't you think that, you know, (laughs) but maybe it's worthwhile just to think about it.
2: Also, I guess, To try and be at peace with our contradictions. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel in this world we live in, we are just confronted with our contradictions every day. Like, do we get the iced coffee if it's in a disposable cup or not? Right. I've been thinking a lot about this new label we have for trying to beautify ourselves and it's self-care and yeah. it's everywhere and it's all part of this wellness billion dollar industry that yeah. is just really about beauty and those kinds of things
1: yeah and it's also to me it's just, it's also about consolidating advantage right it's this like it's like if you have enough money to, to take part in the wellness industry then you get to further improve your life you get to further separate yourself from the mass of people that don't and I think about it as like, I, I'm one of these people, right? Like I think about it, oh, I'm stressed. I'm going to like get a massage, you know? And then it feels like what I'm doing is trying to consolidate my own advantages at the same time that the wellness industry is, it's like the, like this, it's another like optimization like sector, right? It's like the, as the world gets harder to live in, in so many ways as work like expands and wages stagnate, you know? All these, co- all these industries spring up to, it's like Amazon, right? Like it's it's just they, they exist because late capitalism has made life like so confusing and hectic and hard and like unwholesome and un- inauthentic. And, you know, these industries have done the like, you know, natural thing and stepped in to offer solutions, privatized solutions.
2: Yeah, but and the wellness industry is also trying to get us to be a better woman. Like right. when I, you, there's a line in the book that talks about that. And and you almost asked the question, like if you were a perfect woman, like, or just a woman that was completely fully optimized, yeah. what would you be doing now? Like, we'll never reach it, but what is the point of all of this anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, like, I think that women in particular have been taught since preteen years that part of what it is to be a woman in the world is to be continually improving yourself till you die. And there's part of that, you know, there's that like famous Sontag essay where she talks about their two modes of beauty for for men. Like there's the, there's the boy and the man and for women, it's just the girl. And so part of this working to improve yourself for women just becomes, you know, just this like full insanity when, you know, it comes to just like actually getting older, but it's also like, you know, there's also the, the idea that we should improve ourselves till we die is just, it's also such a like deeply American one. Like it's this like Protestant work ethic, like we can never stop working in America generally. And with women, it sort of echoes and, you know, splashes back tenfold in terms of like, you know, there's the work part, but there's also the personal part. You can never Like you can never be done if you have the means to continually just like optimize your body, your face, your hair, your lifestyle, you know, what you eat, your work, you know, your meditation routine, your like CBD, whatever. Like it's, there's just so many things that, and again, like these things are somewhat seductive to me at the same time where it's like, yeah, I'm not sure anything is, not sure anything is gained in the long run. I did think you offer a, a light,
2: in one of the essays and that is looking back to the past mm. and it's the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective Oh yeah that book is so Oh good. my gosh can you talk about what these women Amelia and Amalia were doing and it was in the 70s wasn't it Yeah and they really influenced Alana Ferrante
1: Yeah so the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective they have this book called like I think you would say it not like sexual difference, but you'd probably say it in like a French way, but I'm not going to try. It's really good. I really, it's, it's so good. But so the story is in the context of, let's say, so Odysseus, he hears the story of his own like exploits being told in a banquet hall. You know, no one knows he's present and hearing the sound like Hannah Arndt calls this the beginning of history in one of her books like hearing the sound of his life being told by another person he like breaks down and starts to cry and this feminist writer adriana coverero um she writes about this odysseus is becoming not just conscious of his own life narrative but of his, but of his own need to be narrated by another person which is something that I find really lovely and powerful. And and then, so there's this version of it in the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective, this feminist collective in the 70s, where these women would, they were basically trying to find a way to understand their life stories on female terms, which is almost impossible when all of human history has been basically run and recorded by men. And so part of what they would do is like they would read, you know, just read their way through, literature by women, about women, but they would also kind of pass their life stories through each other. So these two friends, Amelia and Amalia, there's a story where Amelia, I think, couldn't get a grasp on her own life story. Like she couldn't tell it coherently. So Amalia wrote it down, wrote Amelia's life story down and gave it to her. And Amelia, like Odysseus, started to cry when she realized, you know, not only of her her story her her narrative her need to be narrated but the fact that it was a woman who cared about her narrating it and i think about that you know i think about that in terms of there is still right like you said there's still possibility there's still sort of unplumbed possibility our world is only just now starting to be starting to be mediated by women right we're only just now starting to have starting to be able to understand the world on women's terms, you know, like I, I, feel, I feel kind of conscious of being part of one of the first generations of, you know, women that has kind of, i never, I never doubted that I would be equal and treated equally. And I, and sometimes when I'm frustrated by anything, you know, related to the gender wars, I think about how recent it was that, things weren't like this. Like when, when the Milan women were writing this book, like women couldn't get credit cards by themselves in the United States yet. So it's like that anecdote is like, to me, emblematic of the possibilities that can happen when the phrase that the Milan women used was like, they wanted to find a language that could speak starting from itself. And that is like an idea that I feel like enormous promise around for like so many groups that haven't previously been in power, right? The language that can speak starting from itself seems like a kind of abstract goal worth working for.
2: It's coming up with almost a new language or a new alphabet yeah. for their own stories. Yeah. Something I love that you mentioned about this group too is that they acknowledged that each other weren't equals right? and they acknowledged their differences and right. that in being honest about who we actually are and our privileges and this and, you know, all the various parts of us, that that was the better place to start about being a collective and helping everyone. It wasn't saying we're all equal, we're all equal, we're all equal. It's like you could hope for that, but it's never a reality. Like no two people ever walk into a room without all these right kind of constructions and their own personal histories.
1: Yeah. And and that was the thing about the Amelia and Amalia story, right? Like there's an echo there where it was the fact that Amalia had lived a different life from Amelia was what allowed her to encapsulate Amelia's stories so carefully, right? Like I presumably. And yeah, so this, the idea, I mean, this is like an Audre Lorde idea, right? That like difference is like a necessary fund of polarities or however she put it. Like it is kind of a politics of freedom begins with difference um, is you know not an idea that these women came up with, but the way they applied it to literature, I think is really interesting. Like, yeah, there's like that whole idea of entrustment, which is like too complicated to explain here really, but this comes at the end of an essay about literary heroines, like the canon of literary heroines, which always drove me a little nuts because they start off as these brave girls and they become depressed, beautiful teenagers. Then they become bitter married women, you know, and I was like, why is this what happens, you know, <laughs> is this just what happens And the trajectory drove me nuts? Like, as did the fact that all, like nearly all of the women you would think of as like the canon of literary heroines are white. And I was just like, what is this horrible world <laughs> that I am ineligible for, you know? Um, and it was Ferrante and the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective, because Ferrante's my brilliant friend, You know, those books are so much about what happens, the sort of friction, the productive friction and sort of transcendent identity formation that comes with the difference between two women, right? Like those books really helped me understand that my difference from these heroines, which I had been kind of low key thinking about my whole life, it was actually what had freed me and made me able to understand their stories in the way I wanted to. And, you know, I'd always thought that basic idea that distance and difference and inequality, if acknowledged honestly and matter-of-factly did not have to be like a, a, a barrier, a moat, right? It could be like a springboard. It also ties in with this moment in
2: childhood that you had with a friend oh, yes. called Allison yeah. <laughs> about the Power Rangers. And I thought it was such a clear symbol. I mean, it actually happened to you. So, but for me of this idea of who we identify with yeah. in stories and yeah. who's who's who gets to say you're this you're that yeah can you tell us that yeah.
1: story and then how it's come to play out so until this moment with my friend Allison my cursed friend, Allison, I had always been like, I can identify with whoever I want, obviously, right? Partially because it's not like there was like a wealth of young Asian like characters for me to identify with at all, right? I still have never read a book specifically about like a like a young Filipino woman in America. Like I still literally haven't done that. I mean, there have been a couple great books in the last year, like Elaine Castillo's book, but growing up, literally not one. And so I was like, oh, like- well, I'm baby spice, um, cause I like her the most. And I like, am like Laura Ingalls because I'm like, you know, whatever, like independent and whatever, you know, I would just naturally, I was the pink ranger because my entire bedroom was pink and I pink is was my favorite color and I didn't really think much about it. And, uh, all my friends in my neighborhood growing up were, were all white. And I was like, yeah, like it's, we're just, I mean, I really, you know, I was a kid, didn't think there was any differences. And then I was playing Power Rangers with my friend and she was like, you have to be the Yellow Ranger. I'm the Pink Ranger. And I was like, no, I'm the Pink Ranger. And she was like, you can't, like, you can't. And I realized that she was really serious. Like she thought that an Asian person like had to be the Asian person. And because there was an Asian person here, like it had to be, you know, I had to be her. And I, like that day just sparked like a realm of fury in me about that, but also about the opposite, right? That um, as I put in the essay, like I would always identify with Joe March, you know, but the Joe Marches of the world would never even be asked to consider identifying with someone like me, you know, and that made me, it partially freed me because I have gathered my confidence, you know, outside of the realm of representation, you know, I like stopped looking to see myself in things, which I think has been good for me, like as a cultural critic and as a writer and like maybe just in different, in other ways that I haven't yet figured out. But, um, it wasn't until I was reading Ferrante and like looking into the Milan Women's Bookstore Collective that I understood that the anger that I had felt had been more productive than I thought and had, you know. I, I could still turn it into this thing where difference and inequality could be the foundation of like a sense of freedom. But yeah, I think I still remember, like, I was just like, what do you mean? <laughs> Can't be the pink ranger. But you know what? I don't think girls today would have that conversation really. I think it's different now.
2: Yeah, you think? I, I think so. Which
1: is great. <laughs> I feel, yeah, little boys are the pink ranger. Yeah, 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 exactly. want to be in
2: this. Yeah. I think it,
1: Yeah. Like that seems to be like a very, like, I I also um, like a a low key thread running through this book is that like, I think that the Bush era in general was like a pretty wild time to be like, it was such a hegemonic time, you know, like even with like teen movies, it was like, you know, it's like the, the season of like the Iraq war and like American pie, you know, just this like extremely, like all of this, really dominance-based politics and culture, you know, in in like a really conservative, kind of ugly way. Like a lot of the experiences I had growing up and as a teenager, I think kids right now are like way too smart to put up with, you know. Talking about the younger generations, one of the pieces you wrote recently
2: for The New Yorker was about vaping. Oh, Oh, my gosh. What's so interesting, because I've been out of America for five or six months and I came back three weeks ago and I was sitting in West Village on a stoop and I had noticed so many people vaping
1: mm-hmm.
2: and coming home from work, like women in suits and things. And once I started seeing that, it was a different gesture yeah. than I had seen
1: yeah. before.
2: And I kept seeing it everywhere, like yeah. this kind of yeah. hidden yeah, yeah, thing totally, you yeah. do with your hand. Yeah. These, the gestures, like a- I could feel you know, when you feel someone looking at you, I was like, someone's doing a gesture that is new to my eyes and it was jeweling or Mm -hmm. vaping. Can you talk about how that story began? And I mean, you also concluded in this really interesting way that's quite open because I don't know if we know
1: the ramifications of it. Yeah. Well, right. So, I mean, the thing about that is that what I found so interesting about that piece is like at first I was like, oh, this is just going to be a funny piece about teenagers and memes. And then I was like, oh, the medical community is intensely divided on this life or death issue, (laughs) you know? Because it really is like, um, so there's the camp that says that that vaping, juuling is the single tool that will fully eradicate cigarette smoking altogether. Um, And cigarette smoking still kills hundreds of thousands of people in America every year, or there's the camp that thinks it will single-handedly return us to a nation of like nicotine addicts. And that, you know, these vapes will be somehow turn out to be just as cancerous as cigarettes, which they almost definitely absolutely will not, but we don't have long-term data, whatever it's confusing. And so, but the piece came about, honestly, this was an assignment I got like Someone had pitched it at a New Yorker ideas meeting and my editor was like, do you have any interest in writing about vaping? And I was like, yes, I've been waiting all my life for someone to, you know, I was just like, it literally felt like to have a New Yorker editor be like, would you like to write a piece about teen vaping? Like I was like, I mean... It's like, it was like you know, the nine were the nine words every woman wants to hear, you know I was like I sent him back just like yes with like ninety five exclamation points. I was just like, yes, send me down this journey to hell baby like <laughs> how many months was the reporting? Because it wasn't that long really? yeah but I I mean but I spent like you know, I guess every New York New Yorker magazine piece I've done it's been I work on it for like maybe three or four months and which feels enormously satisfying as someone who was like editing, Jezebel four years ago, and, like, you know, running like a million posts per day. It feels so luxurious to stretch out. But the best part about writing that piece was like just getting to talk to teens. Like I love them, you know? Like they're so much more savvy and like ironic and nihilistic and self-aware than they ever get painted, you know? and and also they're like very misrepresented by reporters, I feel. And, yeah, that was my favorite part, getting to vape with teens. I got to, hit a jewel in the library of UVA where I went to college and I felt very sneaky. And then they put up signs in the library afterwards that said no, because I put it in the story that I vaped in Alderman Library, which is where I wrote all my papers in high school. I mean, in college, they put up signs. All It's like my impact as a journalist <laughs> oh, is great. to get signs. I felt very proud of myself. It should be like the Tolentino law. I know. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The vaping. Yeah. You'll get <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for chatting. Mm. Thank you so much, Angela. We could have gone to so many more places. Your book is insanely fabulous, scary, and wonderful. (laughs) I'm
1: so glad you liked it.
2: What I love about Gia and her book isn't just that writing helps her make sense of the world, but that really she... Is okay with all the contradictions that live inside of her. It's okay to love bar method and soul cycle and also think it's like being on a conveyor belt of kind of exercise madness. Um, and yet, I guess the point is to not beat ourselves up about all the strange things that seemingly don't make sense about who we are. Let me know what you think about this episode at Lit Up Show on Instagram and
0: Twitter. Thank you